Okay, well, uh, good morning, everyone. Before we get started uh, this morning, would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful that we can gather together like this, that we can hear your word read out loud. Uh, and as we uh, explore your word and as we receive your word and as we wrestle with it, as we seek to submit to your word in our lives, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear from you, that your spirit would convict and uh, help us in understanding. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, a few years ago, we were fortunate enough to be able to visit some friends of ours who are missionaries uh, living in Spain, serving in Spain. And they live in a small town called uh, Villafranca, which is about an hour outside of Barcelona. The town itself is not particularly remarkable. It's just a suburb, uh, a commuter town. But they do have this really remarkable tradition in their city. Uh, They're famous for making these human towers. It's a little dark here, but I don't know if you can see these human towers of people. It's this tradition all throughout that region. And it's really interesting. One night we got to see them actually build these towers together. People start crowding together around the bottom, probably at least a hundred people just around the bottom here. And then slowly some other people start climbing up on the outsides and from inside form this next layer. Uh, And they all have this, they're all holding tightly to each other and then the next layer and the next layer. And then finally, once everything is stable enough, you'll see a little kid will clamber quickly up the shoulders and backs here, you can see this little kid making uh, his or her way all the way up to the top, and they'll wave their hand and then climb back down again quickly before uh, the whole tower-like structure comes down. And it's this incredible thing to see happen in person. It takes them quite a while to get it all set, but once it all comes together, it's really, really incredible. And it's a great visual image for us today as we look at uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, and as Peter talks about this key image of Christians being built up as living stones to be this, this living, breathing temple of God, offering these spiritual sacrifices, and all of that with Jesus Christ as the foundation. Now, of course, all images break down eventually, right? Because this is only temporary. Uh, It only lasts for a few minutes. They're limited in how high they can go. But in contrast, what we're going to see today is that God is at work growing His church in ways that, that defy time and space, expanding out all across the world without limits. God is at work not just growing each one of us individually. We talk a lot about personal spiritual growth and development. But God is also at work growing his church collectively, all of us together, building us up to be his church, his representatives in this world. Well, as we get into our text here, um, uh, first I want to share with you a clear command that Peter gives here in Scripture, a clear command from Peter, and that is to crave, crave the milk. 
<laughs> and he's not talking about chocolate milk here. He said, crave the pure spiritual milk. If you look with me at verse 2, we're going to come back to verse 1 in the second section of our sermon. But starting here in verse 2, Peter says, like newborn infants long for or, or crave, it says in the, the old NIV translation, crave the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. I know uh, it's cooled off a little bit over the last few days, but earlier this week, it was swelteringly hot around here. We were just dying, like Monday or Tuesday. It's oppressive humidity. And when you're feeling really hot, what do you crave? Something ice, right? Something icy cold. Anything icy cold. Coke, coffee, tea, Gatorade, I don't really care what it is, as long as it's got ice in it, and a lot of it, right? The sun's beating down, you're dripping with sweat, it's like, I don't care what it is, just give it to me now. (laughs) And what I want you to to feel here with that image is a sense of of urgency, of intensity, almost like desperation, like, I don't care what it takes, I need it now, Because that's what Peter is talking about here. Look at the text. Peter says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Now what happens if a baby doesn't get the milk that they need, that they want? Anyone? Right, that, well, that, that, yes, they will eventually die. That's a little dark. But before they get to death, there are some intervening stages. They they, they cry, right? <laughs> they cry and they cry and they cry until they get the milk they need. They long for milk because, you pointed out, they can't live without it, right? It's a necessity of life. It's not just this vague longing like, oh, I kind of wish I, I could get some milk at some point. It's like, no, I need this now. I, I, I'm desperate for it. And Peter says... We should long for spiritual milk with that, some of that same kind of, of intensity of desire and longing. That same feeling of, just give it to me now. Now, of course, this creates two big questions for us. First, what is this spiritual milk that Peter is talking about? Right? He's not talking about literal milk here. He's, he, he's talking in a metaphor. So, so what is this milk? And then secondly, how do I, how do I crave it? Uh, how do I make myself crave more of it? All right, first, the milk. What is the milk? Well, Peter doesn't really spell this out for us super clearly, but, but look at verse 2 and 3 together. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, verse 3 here is important because it's an indirect uh, quotation or allusion to Psalm 34, which uh, Sarah just read for us before the service. Psalm 34 is a psalm of, of David when he's on the run from Abimelech. He's stressed out, he's overwhelmed, he's surrounded, he's being chased down by enemies, and he's desperate for help. He's looking to God 
for provision, for protection, for, for refuge. And in that middle of, of, of that time of fear and loneliness, he recognizes there's nowhere else for me to turn. And Peter here is addressing an audience who's going through so many of those same experiences in their time of persecution, feeling isolated, lonely, abandoned, uncertain of what's going to happen next, pressed in on all sides. And this is Peter's way, I think, of encouraging them to cling tightly to God through their time of exile. So I would argue that this the spiritual milk that Peter is talking about here, it's it's God. It's God himself. It's a poetic way to to speak of God's presence with us, his gracious, comforting, uh, uh, caring, ongoing presence. This milk that Peter is talking about, it's it's God's life-giving, life-sustaining presence with us at all times. It's what we need in, in order to grow. But of course, this then takes us to our second question. How do I make myself crave this more? Because most of the time, I'm, I'm caught up in work and, and chores and, and all the busy stuff of life, right? Life is distracting. We, we don't live in church, <laughs> Right? If I, what do I do if I don't have these kind of intense longings that Peter seems to be talking about here? Well, two thoughts. First, uh, embrace your weakness. It's a Holy Spirit thing here. My, Pastor Michael and I didn't coordinate this, but, but just as he was talking about our neediness, our weakness before our service today, we, we live in a performance driven society. Everything is categorized and and named and numbered and measured and sorted and sifted and and rated. We're we're programmed to be self-starters, to be self-reliant, to be self-focused. These are all values that we emphasize in our culture. And in that context, the kind of neediness that Pastor Michael was talking about, the kind of neediness that that David is expressing in Psalm 34, that's seen as weakness, right? And weakness is to be avoided at at all costs. Weakness is seen as a fault, a detriment, something we need to hide and, and pretend we don't have. But the example Peter uses, what's the example he uses? It's a baby, the very definition of neediness. A, a baby is, is the very opposite of self-reliant. And David, Psalm 34, when he's on the run, he's, he's desperately needy. He turns to God not out of duty, not out of obligation, not because... Well, this is the right thing for me to do. As a, you know, I'm, I guess I should write this long, wordy psalm to God. It's, it's, he, he needs help. <laughs> like it's the cry of his heart. Lord, I need you. I turn to you for refuge because I have nowhere else to go. He embraced his weakness. The Apostle Paul boasts of his weakness and calls others to do likewise. Likewise. 
And it may be that this morning, for you, pride and self-sufficiency are keeping you from submitting to God, from experiencing more of His presence, from, from truly craving His work in your life. And so I'd encourage you this morning to embrace your weaknesses and failures. Even the fact that maybe you're sitting here thinking, I don't really have any longings for God. I don't really crave His presence. Admit that. Admit that weakness. And let that fuel and drive you to Christ for help. But a second way that I think we can begin to crave more of God's presence is to consider this. You can't crave what you've never tasted. Okay, that's a kind of a general principle here. You can't crave what you've never tasted. There's this uh, restaurant in Philadelphia uh, that makes these astonishingly good French fries. You've probably all had good French fries before, but I'm telling you, this place is amazing. There's something about the way they they, they make, cut the potatoes or fry them or it's the seasonings or it's this, they serve it with this melted hot white cheddar sauce and it's just, it's astonishing. It's amazing. And, and honestly, I can say that now I crave these french fries. But a month ago, I didn't even know they existed. <laughs> and I think the same principle holds true for us spiritually as well. If you're sitting around passively waiting for this kind of spiritual longing, like, oh, it's just going to sort of bubble up all by itself one day, it's probably never going to happen. Note that the Peter doesn't say, well, like a pregnant woman, don't be surprised when these random cravings appear out of nowhere. He says, no, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We develop a longing for the Lord by tasting the Lord. It's a positive feedback loop. The more you taste, the more you crave. So the obvious follow-up question from that is, have you really tasted that the Lord is good in your life. I'm not talking about a, a one-time conversion experience. I'm, I mean, what are you doing on an ongoing basis to cultivate this kind of desire in your life? For example, obviously if we're talking about God's presence, reading the Bible is one of the primary ways God speaks to us, of course. Maybe when you read of the spiritual milk, you think, oh, God's word, and that's definitely part of it. But when you read, are you just collecting information and reading history and studying uh, sort of doctrine? Or are you trying to grow in your relationship with God through his word? Praying, vitally important to our faith, but, but are you just giving God a list of needs or are you truly seeking connection with your heavenly Father? Are you giving Him space to speak? Are you pausing long enough to listen for His voice? Worship, vital. But is this a routine you run through every week, or do you see this as an opportunity to, to truly be present with your Savior? That's what we're doing here. We're pausing long enough in, a, in our busy schedules to try and be present 
as, as a body with our Lord and Savior through, through singing and through communion and through reading Scripture and everything and through our fellowship meal. These questions all get at our heart attitudes. Of course, there, there are also all kinds of just really concrete things Maybe you can try differently this week. You try a new devotional. There's seems like there's an unlimited number of devotionals available. People are cranking out new ones every day, new reading plans, spending more time in prayer, maybe finding a new location for prayer, spending time with God outside, praying in creation, in God's world. Looking for ways to put your faith into action by serving others. You know, I've been times in my life where I've felt very dry in my prayer life. Uh, I found great blessing reading um, as a Puritan collection of prayers called the Valley of Vision. And reading that has really sparked a new desire in my life, a new hunger for God's presence. Having said all that, I'm not saying you should always be operating at maximum spiritual intensity, like pedal to the metal all the time, redlining in spiritual fervor and excitability, right? The goal is we're seeking a person, not an experience. It should always be primary. But there should be some hunger for God's presence in our lives, some longing, some craving for that. And so Peter's command here is crave the pure spiritual milk, God's life-giving presence in your life. Well, so Peter gives us one command that he wants to obey, but now he's going to give us two promises to believe. And the first promise here is this, you all collectively are being built up as God's temple. Now look with me at, at verses 4 through 6. He says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. This translation is a little bit different maybe than yours. This is from the Christian Standard Bible, and I chose this because they use the word honored here instead of precious. And honor it's such a key word in this context because the contrast is between honor on the one hand given by God and versus shame, the shame that the culture is trying to pour on the followers of Christ. So let me summarize what I think Peter is saying in these few verses. First, the bad news. Jesus was rejected and publicly shamed through his crucifixion and death on the cross. And so now you also, as followers of Jesus, are being publicly shamed for your faith in Christ, mocked, ridiculed. Your rights and privileges are being denied and taken away, and life is going to get harder and harder. But 
Peter says. There is good news because just as God chose Jesus and bestowed honor on him by raising him from the dead, so you too are now being chosen by God to have honor bestowed on you. He has raised you to new spiritual life and he will raise you to eternal life in the final judgment. And all those who show allegiance to Jesus will never be put to shame in God's kingdom. It's, it's just like that final verse of Psalm 34. Those who, who put their trust in God will never be put to shame. Peter takes all these rich images, all these Old Testament quotes and allusions, and he wants to remind his readers that their value, their worth, their significance in life is decided, it's determined by God and God alone. Their enemies may belittle them, but they can never devalue them. And for proof of that, he says, look to Jesus, the living stone. And we're going to explore that, that, that image of Jesus as the living stone in the final section of our sermon. But for right now, I want us to focus on the fact that Jesus, uh, had, just as Jesus is the living stone, we too are now living stones given that same resurrection power that Jesus has, chosen for honor by God, being built up into a spiritual house. Now this picture here is is a photograph of the the western wall, sometimes called the Wailing Wall, in Jerusalem. And I've I've been told it's one of the most holy and, and revered sites in the world for Jewish people because it's sort of the most visible remnant of the temple in Jerusalem. And I show you this picture because this is the kind of mental image I think maybe Peter and his readers would have had in mind. Notice the the carefully shaped stones, each one of them chosen and placed in just the right order, in just the right kind of sequence to build this incredible structure. And this is just the ruins, just a tiny little sliver of what's left. Can you imagine the glory of Solomon's temple or even the temple that existed at the time of Jesus Christ, carefully, specifically constructed to point glory to God? And Peter uses this image to emphasize God's work as the master builder, carefully recreating, not not a new physical temple, but a spiritual temple. There's no longer the need for a physical building. There's no longer the need for, for actual animal sacrifices. God's new building, the church, is made up of living stones. That, that's you and me together. Each one of you carefully selected, shaped, placed for a purpose. And all of this coming together to to build a spiritual temple that's not bound by space or time. But like for Peter and for his readers, expanding to include all people throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia and 
Indeed, all believers all throughout the Mediterranean, all, all around the world. And I want you to see here in the text, all this work is being done by God. Uh, you are being built up. It's something that happens to you. You're, it's, it's passive here. It's happening to you. It's God's work. He chooses the stones. He makes the building. And this applies to all of you collectively. right? God is not just building me up. He's building we up. All of us. Look, look down the rows. Look at the people around you. He's making all of us together to be a spiritual house. This new temple. Which means... I'm not the church, and you're not the church. Together, we are the church. The Spirit of God Himself is the mortar holding all of that together. Now, having said all of that, if all this work is done by God, then is there anything required of us at all? I mean, how do we live out this new role as a holy priesthood? And to some extent, that's going to be the focus of the, the rest of his letter. And, and we're going to get into that in the, the details in the subsequent chapters. But for right now, I, I, want to cost, I want you to cast your eyes back to verse 1, which we skipped over a moment ago. Now, I don't want to sound too negative. But if we're going to love one another earnestly with the kind of love that that Pastor Stephen was talking about last week. If God is building us up into this glorious new edifice called the church, then deceit and malice and hypocrisy and envy and slander, these are all surefire ways to tear it down. These are all relational sins, right? They will corrupt and destroy community, the very thing that God is working to build up. We all know lying is bad, but but deceitfulness adds an extra level of sneakiness because it implies an effort to try and manipulate or, or mislead others. Being deceitful is like trying to to act like a puppet master, pulling all the strings behind the stage. Likewise, envy corrodes contentment. It's the command nobody wants to preach about, right? But, but coveting what another person has or is can lead to an all-consuming obsession. We can become jealous of the way other people look or talk or act or or the kind of family they have, or the spouse they have, or the way of life they have, or the job they have. Envy steals our joy, and left unchecked can lead to resentment. Because it's just another way of saying to God, look, I don't really trust you for the life that you've given me. I don't trust you for for where you've placed me in this wall. I don't trust that you really know what's best for me in my life. And of course, hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing something else, the the sin that continues to be one of the most publicly damaging to the Christian church. 
But none of that has to be true of us. We've seen it happen elsewhere. We've perhaps experienced it ourselves in previous churches or, or, or in our workplace or school or maybe even in our families. But we've been called to be and to do so much more. As representatives of Christ, as living stones chosen to be a part of God's new temple, you are now a royal priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We should live in a way that honors God's work in our lives, pursuing peace, speaking truth, and working towards unity. Well, the final promise that I want you to believe today is this. Christ is the true cornerstone. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, I talked about these, these human towers, right? And although the little kid who clambers up to the top is the one who, who gets the glory of being waving and everyone cheers at that time, who do you think are the most important people in this tower? Who, who are the most important people in this tower? The people at the bottom, right? <laughs> like, the one, not even these people here, the ones you can see. I'm talking about the people whose shoulders they're standing on top of, underneath here. It's incredible. If that foundation is not stable, the entire tower is at great risk of collapsing under all that enormous weight. If someone's not quite in the right position or if, if, if they're not paying attention to what's going on, the whole tower will collapse. And you can see where this is going because in a similar way, Peter says that Christ alone is that sure foundation in our lives. The cornerstone that holds the entire spiritual building together. We get excited about our role as being a part of that tower, but without Christ underneath it all, anything we build is at risk of collapse. So look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This uh, quote comes from Isaiah chapter 28. And at the time Isaiah was writing, the people of God were under imminent threat from Babylon. And Isaiah had been pleading with them, turn to God for help, trust in the Lord for help. And instead, they're looking over to Egypt. Maybe we can find help over there. They had lost sight of their center. The foundation was crumbling. The entire edifice was collapsing all around them. And they could not see what was happening. But in the midst of all of that chaos at the time of Isaiah, God offered a word of hope that he was going to lay a foundation one day that would never crumble or fall. The actual temple might be torn down, that the people of God might be taken away into exile, but God would rebuild on a foundation that could never be touched by human hands. And whoever builds on that foundation would never be put to shame. Peter then takes that same theme and he draws out a similar quotation from from Psalm uh, 118. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, 
the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A Psalm 118 is incredibly similar to Psalm 34. A psalm of distress, I need your help, God. And the psalmist, in the middle of that intense fear and concern, chooses to trust God for salvation. What you see here, Peter is not just sort of flipping through a concordance and saying, where are all the references to stone? Let me just throw all those in my letter to impress my readers. He's drawing on specific examples where people were under persecution and threat in times of distress and fear and how, they, and how God encouraged them to turn to him for refuge and strength. And he's encouraging his readers to do the same. That if they trust in Jesus, he will deliver them. You know, I was on a Zoom call last week uh, with pastors from, from Pakistan and India and Malaysia and Thailand and Nepal and Bhutan and countries on the other side of the world where, where the language and the culture and the experience is so different from our own. And these faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are working in context so different from ours, they're all building on this same solid ground, the same cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Many of them have been rejected by their families, by their communities, by the world around them. They've been laughed at for, for, being, uh, uh, for being foolish, mocked at for, for choosing a different way of life that involves dying to self. They've experienced great shame for following Christ. Some of them are at great danger for following Christ. But like you and I, they have tasted that the Lord is good and now nothing else will satisfy them. They've been ruined for life in a good way. They take great comfort from verse 6. Whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. They identify intimately with Jesus as someone who was rejected Uh, by those opposed to God. And most importantly, they press on with the strength that comes from knowing that Christ is the cornerstone, that their work is not in vain, that their work may not bear the fruit that they long for or hope to see, but their lives are firmly, securely, and absolutely rooted and built on the only solid ground that matters this side of heaven. But going back to the image of the human towers that I showed you, what would happen if you replaced some or all of the people at the very bottom of that tower with sort of cardboard cutouts? Right, That tower wouldn't last very long. The whole thing would collapse almost instantly. It might look good for a photo from a distance, but the tower would never stand. And in our, in our own lives, we like to think, well, that would never happen. I would never do something that stupid. But my experience tells me otherwise. In fact, what I've noticed over the years is that fear reveals our true foundations. When things start to go wrong, it becomes very clear, very quickly, what we've really been building our lives around. And so I wonder, what is the last year revealed for you 
about the strength of the foundations in your life? Where has Jesus perhaps slowly been replaced with cardboard cutouts of your own creation? Perhaps confidence in your own health or in your own financial planning or confidence in your job or in your natural gifts and abilities or, or confidence in having the right person in charge or confidence in being around all the right people or confidence in your own ability to control things. These are all cardboard cutouts that cannot withstand the weight of life. And I get it. This, in, in some ways, is a very normal sin. We are constantly battling the temptation to trust in ourselves, to build our own building with ourselves as that cornerstone. But if you don't identify those false foundations and replace them with the only true foundation, Jesus Christ, the building will continue to slowly crumble and eventually it will collapse. For encouragement in this area, I, I encourage you, go read the Psalms. See how David and so many others have wrestled with this same struggle in their lives, wrestled with their own doubts and fears and anxieties, and found comfort in turning to God for that strength, keeping God at the center. One conclusion today is you work to develop a taste for the spiritual milk of God's empowering presence in your life. As you remind yourself that it is God at work building you up as living stones into that spiritual house. And as you fight against your own sinful heart to keep Christ as the cornerstone, you will grow. As you do all these things, you will grow. You will flourish. And you will again gain confidence to stand firm against any kind of persecution and suffering and struggle that God allows into your life. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful that you are that cornerstone in our lives, that you are that sure foundation, that you are the one building us up into this new temple. This is your church, that you are growing, your kingdom, and you are the king over all of it. And I pray, Lord, today that that you would help us to crave your, your presence more, to rely on your presence more, and to trust you in all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.